You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 276. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Annika Harrison. See ya! Hello. <laughs> oh, what happened? Where is Pontus? With the Siastock, we lost the stock, I, I noticed. <laughs> yeah, because it's just... Because it's only one person. <laughs> only one person, yeah. So the the number of people that I address at a greeting, it matters when it comes to Hungarian. That yeah. makes sense, yeah. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> well, in English, it's only you and you, but in, in German, it's different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but hello can be used for any number of people. Hello is for everybody, yeah. For like for one, two, okay. three thousand, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. Yeah. So, Pontus too busy. After all, he's leading the Swedish skeptical organization, VOF. And uh, as, as I understood, he's quite busy with things to do around that at the moment. So he cannot be he- here with us. But hoping for him to be able to do, to make it next week. Yeah, he's he is after all a very important Pontus, a VIP. A VIP, <laughs> a very important Pontus, exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. So are you are you still okay after your vaccination, Annika? You're still not, not magnetic or anything. Oh, I'm I'm magnetic. I have got good uh, mobile phone connection. Oh, good. I can open any kind of electrical door with my finger because I've I've got a chip in my finger now. So I'm I'm wow. a cyborg. The vaccination made me made me like turned me into the Terminator. <laughs> and that just makes me jealous that I got the wrong vaccine. <laughs> None of those things, and uh, that pisses me off. I, I want better cell reception. I want to have a magnetic personality as well, just as you do. <laughs> so um, how's the little one that depends on you very much? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the little one is, is doing good. Okay. She had her first bite of solid food yesterday. <laughs> so we're... Okay. Was this something very, very tough? Did she have to uh, hunt it down or... Yes, yes, it was it was a deer that she had to had to kill herself. <laughs> nice. No. <laughs> no, it was a bit of uh, pretty much just like dried powdered corn that is then oh, yeah. blown up to a huge those puffy things. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, it's it's good. It's good to try to mix it with saliva. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Delicious. It mixes very well. It's that that powdery thing can become a gooey stuff. <laughs> and it's really good if you're teething anyway, so good stuff, good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's, it's it's just so exciting to see like very normal things in a new light in that regard. <laughs> yeah. Normal things in our lives. Well, some people's lives are full of difficulties and they are struggling and they are getting in trouble very easily. What do you think of this, the latest goings on in Belarusia? I was gobsmacked. Like all the rest of Europe. (laughs) <laughs> like I, I read it, uh, I think at night, and I was just like, "Whoa! <laughs> oh my god! What happened there, guys? Like that's not cool." No, you know, it's so ridiculous to see that a leader, even if we know that he's a dictator, 
it's unbelievable that there are places so close to the borders of Europe where people get silenced like that. Yeah. So for the, for, for those of our listeners who don't know what we're talking about, Alexander Lukashenko's uh, regime is really playing it rough as of late because there is this uh, guy, he's a journalist, a blogger, who was traveling from Greece, from Athens, to Vilnius in Lithuania on a Ryanair flight. And all of a sudden, while in Belarusian airspace, they were diverted and escorted with a MiG-29 fighter jet to Minsk airport, where the guy was taken off the airplane and the European leaders got up in flames over it, and rightly so, Yeah, I believe. And now there are all kinds of different sanctions. What surprises me the most is how quick the response was from the EU leaders. Yeah. That was unprecedented. <laughs> it's like the thing, like the event that happened in itself was already bad enough, but it's like it's setting a precedent. And it's also, it is about trust. And if you can't trust mm -hmm. just like flying over a country anymore. Yeah then you have to be hard. Like, your reaction has to be quick. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. But, yeah. And there are all kinds of, of legal implications as well uh, that are, are being investigated as we speak. Uh, so by the time this goes out, uh, there, there might be a lot of developments. I'm really hoping that the guy, Protashevich, will not be harmed by then because he appeared a couple of days ago on TV, on the Belarusian TV, obviously the state television channel, and uh, he appeared somewhat different. I mean, he appeared as if he had been beaten up or something. Yeah. And he denied all that, and he said that he's in good shape and he's being treated well. But, uh, well, that would not be the first time for someone to lie through their teeth into the camera to protect people that they might fear for. And that is unbelievable. It's ridiculous. And obviously Belarus uh, has uh, very tight connections to Putin's Russia. So uh, he was quick to to get into the game and uh, defend him in a way, uh, while all the other leaders, including Orban's government, actually, which, which was very surprising to me, uh, they condemned these actions of the Belarusian government. And rightly so. Yeah. This is not how you treat your opponents. This is not the way to win an argument. It's not an argument if you just silence the other the other person yeah. who criticizes you. <laughs> it's it also tells a lot about you and your self confidence if you have if you exactly. have to silence your opponent <laughs> or the lack thereof. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's also like. It was on a Ryanair flight. Like it was. It was international ground. It was neutral. That's that's also something that was just like... <laughs> yeah, it was an, a Ryanair flight which belongs to an Irish company. Yeah. But the base airport, I think, for this was in Poland, for this particular aircraft. And it was flying through Belarusian airspace on its way without stopping from Athens to Vilnius. And they claimed that it was bomb. Obviously, there was no bomb found on the plane, so uh, it was obviously a made-up yeah. reason yeah. to stop them. But that is scary. Yes. And that should not happen in our world. Anyhow, enough of things not related to skepticism, <laughs> but uh, these are just things that, you know, a podcaster needs to get off their chests. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, well, if we're talking about getting off of our chests, I would maybe like to add that today is the one year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. Oh my God. I know it's yeah. not European, but it's something that shook, I think, all of us and... Um, the whole world, yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And which is still happening, mm. not with George Floyd, but with other colored people. And yeah, that's just something I wanted to point out that this is already a year ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, time flies. And this is why I think we should crack on with the show Yes, and talk about stuff that we prepared for today. And obviously, the first part of the show has to be, as always, This Week in Skepticism. Yes, and this week in Skepticism, we have something very exciting because Bram Stoker's Dracula was first published on the 26th of May, 1897. <laughs> 1897? It's, it's yeah. unbelievable that it was before the turn of the, the 20th century. Yes. Wow. Yes. <laughs> and for those who don't know, it's a gothic horror novel. Um, and here we find the first instance of the Count Dracula. And it was also a groundbreaking work of vampire fantasy. Mm -hmm. The m book is about the move of Count Dracula from Transylvania to England. And of course, it's about fantastic creatures and the supernatural. Mm -hmm. The name Dracula might be derived from an order of chivalry, <laughs> like an order of dragon. Yes. And also people also think that uh, Vlad the Impaler... <laughs> Was, is pretty much was was pretty much the prototype for Count Dracula, and you might ask yourself like, well, it's a f popular book. What does what does it have to do with uh, skepticism? And I would say, on the one hand, hmm. you can see really see how the public attention of a book can influence the pop cultures and ideas. Because like this is still it, it is still very popular. Uh, if you just look at um, Twilight, <laughs> for example, like the, these mm -hmm. ideas with vampires and everything, they still exist. Real life vampires exist. Yeah, the blood drinkers. <laughs> yeah, but also you can see, as I said, when public attention influences public perception, then it can also happen that supernatural ideas can lead to, to superstition and then also to mm -hmm. persecution. Uh, for example, someone we both know is, is fighting against exactly that in, in Africa, Leo Igwe. I don't know if you remember him from yeah. ESC 2017. Yes. He's doing a fantastic job about that. And uh, yeah, it's pretty much the supernatural and superstitions in um, or the belief in that that he's, that he's countering, that he's working against. Yeah. And... That goes back to ideas about supernatural stuff, including Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> but did Stoker get his ideas from a collection of stories or he completely made the whole thing up based on the story of Vlad the Impaler? I mean, did he go around? Did he ever visit Transylvania where where it was all set? As far as I know, he used a lot of ideas and took it from uh, like a lot of different spaces. But no, actually, he never visited Romania. Like, he never went there. He wow. just got his idea from different parts of pop culture or of history of his ideas at that point of time and, and then spun a story around it. <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, that is fascinating. There are stories circulating about Vlad III. I mean, the name Dracula that is used for uh, Vlad the Impaler, who was... Uh, Vlad the Third, and the name Dracul comes from uh, Vlad the Dragon, and he was the father of Dracula. 
And the name that you you already mentioned that it was derived from the, the name of the of an order, the order of the dragon, and he was a member of the order of the dragon that was established by and for Sigismund of Luxembourg, who was the Holy Roman Emperor as well, and he like a political party. He that was a collection of his supporters, and um, one of the very prominent members was Vlad II. And he was the Vovoid of, of Wallachia. And this is where he derived his name, Vlad the Dragon. And his son was also called Dracula. So uh, interesting stuff. And, and it has a lot of connections to Hungarian <laughs> history as well, which I always find yeah. really joyful. By the way, do you remember that Deborah Hyde uh, made a video of uh, Vlad the Impaler and his story? Yeah, I, th- I think I do remember that. And it's just, I would say Deborah Hyde's work is really uh, showing how much influence Dracula still has <laughs> because yeah. otherwise like people still care about vampires and about the ideas and and yeah we should definitely um, recommend Deborah's video and uh, yeah yeah and we should probably put it in show notes as well yes we will the link to the video yes all right thank you very much Annika thank you that was yet another very nice catch let's move on to not necessarily the news but things to talk about, because as Pontus is not here today, uh, we're not poking the Pope in his name. I mean, we're just leaving the Pope alone. So uh, the Pope can sleep well tonight. Can, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're moving on to the news. <laughs> and I'd like to start with uh, something that is really important in the spirit of helping our fellow skeptics across borders. Uh, something we've seen several examples of in the last couple of years, when skeptics in different countries end up in slap lawsuits for speaking up against pseudoscientific claims and and corn artists and and snake oil salesmen. Yeah. All right. What is a slap lawsuit, by the way? It's a uh, it's a good acronym to use because also uh, slapping someone yeah, means in the means face, just yeah. hit them in the face. But the other meaning as an acronym is that it's a strategic lawsuit against public participation. So this is what it's all about. Anyhow, the other day, Edzardern's uh, blog featured a guest article by João Julio Serguera. Please, listeners from Portugal, let me know <laughs> how to pronounce it, uh, his name well. I tried listening to people calling him by his name. And I cannot mimic it. So please help us out here. So this guy runs a very popular blog in Portugal called CIMED or SciMed. Uh, he's a medical doctor who lives in Porto, where our friends from Concept, Diana Barbosa and João Monteiro, live as well. Cerqueira uh, promotes science-based medicine and is a well-known critic of alternative medicine. And this has led to the grave situation he's currently in, which is having four parallel lawsuits running against him for defamation. Wow. <laughs> Obviously, these cases are designed to stop him in his tracks, as a well-rounded slap lawsuit is there to do. So he kind of needs the international community's help now. We all know that a lawsuit comes with a lot of expenses. Comsept has tried helping his case, but since it is a small organization, obviously their resources are scarce. So he's calling for any help from people around the world to contribute to his fight in the courtroom. And as we've mentioned in relation to other similar cases, this is not only about helping a fellow skeptic 
who's in trouble. Uh, we've mentioned it in the, the case of the Belgian skeptics, that we had an interview as well about all that. It was the same thing with um, Brit Marie Hermes's case. So the more attention these cases get, the more exposed the charlatans behind these cases get. And if we show strength, there might be a chance for things like this to happen less frequently. Because if these snake oil salesmen, they realize that they cannot mess with the international community of skeptics when it comes to facts and when it comes to science. And they are the ones conning people, so they should be ashamed and they should shut the fuck up <laughs> instead of tr trying to make their critics shut up. Then I think we have something to fight for. And of course, we are adding the link to his blog, to, to the show notes. It's all in Portuguese, but you can use Google Translate and it's very understandable when it comes to that. And there you can find information on how to support him as well, like a, a Patreon account and all that. So if you can afford it, please consider helping his case. Yeah, especially every little thing helps. Yes, and we will link to his guest blog post on Edzadern's blog as well, of course, so that you can read his article in English uh, about this situation where he explains all that. And thanks to everybody who's being as brave and who's doing that work. Like, yes. That's also something that's admirable. <laughs> yeah, and um, it's been sad on many occasions that obviously we need to be careful and cautious in the way that we address these issues, that we don't necessarily call these people what we really think they are. <laughs> <laughs> because we might get into trouble for that but on the other hand shying away from criticizing them is not the way to go so this is why we need to support each other then they've already won yes and that's the reason for them filing these lawsuits in the first place so we should not let them do that or get away with it <laughs> no they shouldn't win <laughs> yeah and uh something legal also happened in germany because um a lot of skeptics and, and other uh, medical people wanted a legal opinion on the healing practitioner law. Mm -hmm. And now the healing practitioner legal opinion certificate, <laughs> which is one German word, yes, uh, <laughs> is, is out now. Oh, oh, please say that German word. It is Heilpraktikerrechtsgutachten. <laughs> and that is all one word. Yes. <laughs> I love German. But you normally would say Rechtgutachten zum Heilpraktikerrecht, which is uh, not only, no, it's, it's three words. <laughs> it's three words, yeah. okay. But you can make one word of it. But you, you, you Germans, you, you just make a sport out of putting all those words together and make one word out of them. Yeah, that works. <laughs> it's really funny. You can do that. We love compound words and we can do it with pretty much every kind of noun yeah. we, we want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, the, the longest word in the world is not a German word, is it? No, I think it's not. The longest English world is pneumo ultra microscopic silicovolcanioconiosis. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that you have a much longer word in German. <laughs> Probably. So we'll do our research for that next week and then I'll pronounce the longest German word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> But the legal opinion to the healing practitioner law. Uh, it was done by a lawyer who's also an expert in that field mm -hmm. called Professor Christoph Stock. Mm -hmm. And he, like, they wanted him to, to just, like, look at the law and see if it's still legal to have healing practitioners um, work with patients. With healing practitioners, it's usually 
like we call it healing practitioner or um, Heilpraktiker in German. But what what's meant by that is usually people that do scam, like so-called alternative medicine. So Christoph Stock says he wants to keep the healing practitioner field like it is, but he wants to redefine what a healing practitioner is. He claims that because of tradition, alternative healing is very important. Although as we would say, yeah, well, that's actually more dangerous for patients. So for the sake of tradition, keep danger around? Hmm, mm -hmm. maybe, I don't know. And he also says that the so-called alternative medicine methods don't need to work or be economically efficient. So what he basically said is, Uh, you can pay a lot for it it doesn't need to work whatever <laughs> and then he also wants a collection for um, scam things and uh, which is funny because that's exactly what Edzard Ernst did in his book Alternativmedizin was hilft was schadet <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah it, it just like is um, Bernd Harder called it on the GWP blog he called it Quark like a lot of quark <laughs> and quark is kind of like German fresh cheese that you spread on bread. So now you know the quality of the paper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Talking about the quality of papers. We all know that science is cool, right? And it has changed the quality of our lives and, and our ways to, to tackle global challenges so much that it should be obvious to all that we need to give scientists much more of a say in things. But this generates whole new problems, right? For instance, uh, how do we choose which scientists we trust? What pieces of science we accept? And things like that. Because we see scientists pop up front and back with crazy ideas in support of totally unscientific claims like anti-vaxxers. You can find all kinds of different spokespeople who might even have their scientific credibility all lined up, but they can still talk rubbish. Oh, by the way, more on that later. So... That all is a problem, I think we can agree. But that's not the only one. There are serious issues with the way scientific work is being shared with the world. I'm talking about publications. With the advance of preprint servers, especially since the onset of this global pandemic, there is a growing number of articles that get all the media attention without having been peer-reviewed and tested by the scientific community for credibility and reliability. And that is tragic because that kind of process is the backbone of scientific progress. It is the very essence of scientific inquiry that, that makes sure quality is always a priority and shitty ideas and unsubstantiated claims do not fall through the cracks. But it turns out that this problem goes even deeper than the issue with preprint servers and uh, scientific publications getting out uh, in, into the public without rigorous checks because researchers at the university of california san diego i know they're not in europe but it has relevance to european <laughs> research as well because it's, it's worldwide they published an article in science advances about yet another of those so-called replication crises that is a specific part of the problem with publications that there are several issues uh, with different results not being possible to replicate and that shows that those results might not be correct right but this time it's a bias in the amount of citations uh, that articles get based on how replicable 
their results are. You would think that the correlation goes one way, like the more replicable the results are, the more likely the paper is to be cited. That would be smart, yes. <laughs> yeah, that would be smart. And that is what you expect. And the, the researchers worked with more than 20,000 published articles and their citations from the field of social sciences, economics and medical science. So some journals showed a massive gap between replicable and non-replicable papers, but it wasn't what you would expect. Instead of the ones that failed to be replicated being ignored, as you would expect, they are much more likely to get cited. Which is counterintuitive, isn't it? <laughs> it is indeed. And they are way more likely to get cited. <laughs> in interestingly, the larger gap was found in Nature and Science, two of the most highly acclaimed journals. With them, there was a 300-fold increase in the number of citations when it came to papers with results that failed to get replicated. So, what the f*** is going on here? <laughs> and obviously the question remains as to why that might be. The authors argue that it's probably a trade-off that editors face because those articles that later fail to be replicated might be more interesting. So the contents might be much more intriguing to read, therefore more appealing for a publisher, and as a result they are much less thorough in scrutinizing its contents before publishing those papers. So it's interesting, it shows you how human we all are and how science is being done by humans <laughs> yes. who have their biases. But this is why we need to fix stuff like this, because systematically we have to be able to rely on the, the, the methods of science, right? Yeah. This is a problem that has to be addressed because it can easily lead to a shift in the quality of research in all of these, these fields and we don't want that. We've already seen that happen with the preprint servers and all that. It can even lead to like a whole paradigm shift, can't it? If exactly. If only non-replicable papers are, are being cited. Yeah, and <laughs> we've already had the, the problem of new journals popping up. For example, the journals for homeopathy. They couldn't get enough publications in other journals, in well-rounded, reputable journals. So they founded their own journals. <laughs> and this is how they wanted to get away with all that. So, nah, should not be the way. No. <laughs> Something that also shouldn't happen this way <laughs> Okay. is that a famous, and he's really famous, a famous COVID denier uh, made a song in Germany. Okay together with a lot of other rap musicians. <laughs> so mm -hmm. Xavier Naidu, who um, was a pretty famous singer, he made a song with a collective called Rebellion, which is pretty much a pun with, with rebel, revolution, rebellion, <laughs> and rap, so Rebellion. And they are pretty much going on the same side as the Querdenker, so like the COVID deniers. Mm -hmm. And these 18 rappers, they made a song called Ich mach da nicht mit. That means I'm not participating. <laughs> okay. And it contains lines like, I'm not participating. It doesn't make sense. This poison will never get into our bodies. My siblings and I are daring to take this step. Satanic slaves are apathetic and sick. So I say, fuck new world order. Etc. Etc. Okay. <laughs> so you can imagine how I like. I actually made made myself listening to the song, um, <laughs> which was hard because it's already uh, already deleted from YouTube. But it's it's interesting. It's just like, oh, 
na, I was really struggling. <laughs> and they're even seen wanting to attack a vaccination center. They don't say they want to blow it up, but it pretty much looks like they want to blow it up. Ooh. And someone else even called it a call to arms. And this is just like, it's before I just thought like, oh yeah, that's really pathetic. <laughs> but when I actually listened to the song, I was like, huh, that's actually not only pathetic, that's dangerous. So th so do you think there might be too many people taking this all seriously? or? Well, I hope... How popular are, is this song? Thing. Um, the song itself is is not really popular popular yet. So okay. the problem was okay. that uh, or is that Xavier Naidoo himself was pretty famous. So to give you an idea, he was he was part of um, a band called Söhne Mannheim, <laughs> and he was like on German charts uh, for over a hundred weeks on um, for several of of the songs. So he's a pretty well known German singer. The thing is that everybody knows that he fell off the rails pretty much. Okay. Because like he, he already started going off the rails even before the pandemic, like actually wearing tinfoil hats and stuff. Oh, and, and also claiming that Germany is not a state, but uh, like a satellite state of the US and stuff like that. So he claimed weird stuff before the pandemic even. And that's why a lot of people are not believing him anymore because they know that he's he's um going in the wrong direction. <laughs> You're putting it very mildly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm just being polite. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're afraid of a slap lawsuit, aren't you? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> no, but yeah, it's is that can this song can also be be dangerous. Um Yeah. It's like, even if you say, oh, you, we don't want to get vaccinated because it's poison, that's already dangerous. But if you pretty much say you want to fight against vaccination centers, then mm -hmm. that's threatening. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, good stuff. Not. Not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you very much. And I think that concludes our uh, segment mm -hmm. but even if in pontus's absence i think there is something that we should talk about and i think it's worthy of a really wrong price so we're all familiar with the noble disease right the noble disease yeah 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 it's the it's a phenomenon that uh, nobel prize winners forget that they're not experts in everything oh yeah the hybris yeah <laughs> that, that level of hubris isn't an absolute winner and there are very good examples and one one of those examples that is often cited is luc montagnier who's uh, a french virologist and um, he's a nobel prize winner as well uh he won the nobel prize in 2008 for um the discovery of the human immunodeficiency virus HIV. Mm -hmm. So he, at least back in the day, he knew his shit. Uh, apparently, he doesn't necessarily still do that. <laughs> have that um, capability uh, until today. So I'm not sure about it. He's he's just talking rubbish about COVID nineteen. And what what am I talking about? There is a foundation that's called the Rare Foundation. Don't know if you're familiar with that. It's uh, Rise, Align, Ignite, Reclaim. That is the basis of the acronym Rare, and it's a, a U.S.-based thing. But they have they they are trying to build a movement in different countries. So 
with a German, a Polish, a French, Hungarian, Czech, Romanian, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, Hebrew, and Arabic team of translators that they work with so that they can influence political changes and uh, societal changes in those countries as well. So they publish an article, an actual interview with uh, Nobel Prize winner Professor Luc Montagnier. <laughs> and um, he's very old, by the way. He's um, 88 years old already. So um, the thing is that he said at least two things that are not really factual when it comes to the scientific background of the spreading of the virus. One of them is that he actually said, and I listened to part of the, the interview, and, well, I understand a little bit of French, and I tried following the subtitles, the English subtitles, comparing it to what I heard from him, and it, he did actually say, apparently, that the vaccinations are what create the variants of the virus. Oof. <laughs> which is complete and utter BS. The thing is that had he said it about bacteria or bacterial infections, it could be argued that there is something to it. But with uh, viruses, it's absolutely not the case because bacteria can outsmart in a way because there are several different ways for bacteria to avoid or counter the effect of antibiotics, for example. So antibiotic resistance can go that way. So antibiotic treatments can actually drive the evolution of bacteria to be able to completely resist and counter the effects of antibiotics. But it's not the case with the vaccinations, because vaccinations don't do that. And the, the most important difference is that Bacteria, they are metabolizing. They have metabolic pathways. They are living organisms. They grow, they feed, they replicate. But viruses cannot replicate by themselves. They have to be replicated by our own cells. And when they, they are, then our immune system is what fights them. And part of what happens is that the immune system, the lymphocytes, the B lymphocytes that, that generate the antibodies. And the antibodies are the ones that connect to the surface antigens on the, the virus. And they make a complex. And that complex is recognized by the other parts of the immune system. And they are destroyed. So this is how the antibodies are playing an important role in our immune system. And the, the, how, how it works. But the other thing that he claims is that vaccines create the antibodies, so they lead to the creation of the antibodies. But when that happens, it makes it the situation much worse through something that is called an antibody-dependent enhancement of the reaction of the body. That's an ADE, as it's being referred to. So it's a known phenomenon which happens in some cases with some diseases. I think I, I, I mentioned dengue. Dengue fever yeah. on several occasions on this show. I think you did, And yeah. that is a disease that um, shows that phenomenon. So the immune system overreacts when there are antibodies already in the system from a previous infection. So a second infection can become much more severe. We have not seen that happen either through a second infection with COVID-19 
or through vaccination. The interesting part is, and this is where the confusion might be coming, is that there were some animal studies that showed something similar, something the, the there were incidences of ADE happening in some animal studies, but once it got to the phase of human trials, it was not seen at all. So there is no reason for us to believe that there is an ADE going on with COVID-19 vaccinations. And yet, Montagnier claims that there is. And the real problem with this is that he is a well-trusted man. So he's a man of authority to many people. Not because he's being recognized all over the world as a leading expert of his field, because he's not anymore. And you know where when that happened? When he started talking rubbish about things like homeopathy. That he started supporting homeopathy indirectly at first, but then he turns toward a full-blown support for homeopathy and he became a professor at a Chinese university as well. So he went all the way down that road. Wow. <laughs> all down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Absolutely. And that means that he was somewhat discredited in the scientific community. Although everyone acclaims him very highly for his work with, uh, with HIV, which is well-deserved, as well as the Nobel Prize for that. But once a person turns into a former expert who now just talks rubbish, there is no reason to support his idea, uh, ideas anymore. And yet, the public doesn't know that. The public has no idea. His credibility is still there because he's a Nobel laureate. That is, we know that it's a logical fallacy to appeal to his authority, but it works on a lot of people, that they believe what he says only because he's a Nobel laureate. And now this da these dangerous ideas are spreading uh, all over the world. So that is something that we somehow have to counter on an international level, because this French virologist is just talking rubbish and doesn't make much sense. So, for spreading misinformation in the times of a global pandemic where science should prevail and science should be supported by evidence-based statements, Nobel laureate Professor Luc Montagnier gets today's prize for being really wrong. Well deserved. It is indeed. All right, but that really concludes the show. And obviously, we need a quote. And I could not find a better, more fitting quote to what I just said about Luc Montagnier, the noble disease and um, the phenomenon of appeal to authority, than this one from Thomas Henry Huxley, British biologist, uh, naturalist, and uh, he was often referred to as... Darwin's bulldog, yes. because he was the one fighting for Darwin's ideas much more vehemently than Darwin himself. But he did a very good job at that, I think. Yeah. And the quote is, The improver of natural knowledge absolutely refuses to acknowledge authority as such. For him, scepticism is the highest of duties. Blind faith, the one unpardonable sin. <laughs> that sums up uh, skepticism really well, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. And um, yeah, I think Thomas Huxley knew a lot about skepticism. All right. So that is a wrap uh, for today, I think. Thank you very much, Hanika, for joining me today. Thank you. 
And many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, when hopefully we have Pontus back, goodbye. Tschüss. Bis dann. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can be